But when you look at the world from a bunker, you have a limited horizon. You don't see clearly. You don't see that far. And Israel risks continuing to make many mistakes that are only going to prolong this conflict and to deepen the tragedy, rather than trying to grope however difficultly and however uncertainly for a way out of it and a way to a future where both sides can live in peace and security. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello America fans and welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings you an international perspective on US politics and foreign policy. I'm your host Andy Gawthorpe and today I'm going to bring you an update on the situation in the Middle East and the Biden administration's approach to it. As I record this, it's been a few days now since Israel restarted its ground offensive in Gaza. There was a brief pause that had been mediated by Qatar whereby Hamas was releasing some hostages in exchange for Israel pausing the fighting. That deal now broke down the fighting is back on. If anything, the diplomatic pressure on Israel has only increased since before the ceasefire. Some people, I think, were hoping that that was going to just be extended indefinitely and the conflict would kind of trickle out. But Israel is fully committed to this goal of eliminating Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and they're now even hinting about starting a second front against Hezbollah. So this naturally is focusing a lot of attention on the Biden administration's approach to this question. There was a resolution before the UN Security Council a few days ago which was designed to force Israel to implement a ceasefire. The Biden administration was the only country on the Security Council, or rather the United States was the only country on the Security Council that voted against this ceasefire resolution. The United Kingdom abstained from voting. Everybody else voted for it. So the US really appears to be in this quite isolated position in the extent that it is backing Israel at this point. I'm going to go in this episode a little bit deeper into why the Biden administration is so forcefully behind Israel, what's the history of Biden's relationship with Israel and the domestic politics of that, and where we might see things go in the future, particularly as we move into the post-war situation, which will arrive, you know, one day sooner or later. Then there's going to be the need to think about what happens in Gaza the day after? What happens in the Middle East the day after? And that's something that I think you'll see the Biden administration really trying to involve themselves in. So that's going to be this week's episode of America Explained. As always, we really hope that you enjoy listening to the podcast. If you do, please tell a friend. That helps us grow. And consider signing up to our newsletter. You can find a link to the newsletter, which also gets you a substantial discount off it in the show notes for this episode. I think the most noticeable thing about Biden's approach to Israel is how overwhelmingly supportive it has been since the attacks of October 7th. The Biden administration has this strategy that they call hugging them close. And basically this strategy is that they publicly refrain from criticism of Israel in the hope that that will give them the political capital to push for changes and push for Israel to do certain things behind closed doors in private. And I guess the origins of this is a particular view of Israeli psychology. The people in the Biden administration basically think that Israel is a country that is used to being subjected to criticism from all over the world, even from countries that are you know, relatively friendly to Israel, like in Europe, 
The Biden administration thinks that if we can come to be seen as Israel's best friend in the world, its most reliable public champion, then that gets us credit in the bank. It gets us political capital to allow us to push Israel to behave in certain ways and to change its behavior. At the beginning of the conflict, it was pretty impossible to see any daylight between the US and Israel on really any issue whatsoever. In the immediate aftermath of October 7th, when the world was still processing that absolutely horrific attack by Hamas on that day, the only message that you really got from the Biden administration was, we stand 100% behind Israel and we will support them in doing what they feel like they need to do. Now, over time, you started to see, I wouldn't exactly call it criticism, but just more, let's say, commentary on what Israel is doing and particular aspects of what Israel is doing. So you started to see US officials talk about the need to minimize civilian casualties, the need to adhere to the laws of war. You started to talk about the need for humanitarian aid to get into the Gaza Strip and for that to be distributed among the population. And you've also started to hear US officials talk about what might happen after the conflict in Gaza. So what's the political situation going to be once this conflict is gone, whether Hamas still has some kind of presence in Gaza or whether it has no presence whatsoever? I call this commentary not criticism because it's not being couched in terms of criticism, but when you look at it in the context of what the rest of the world is saying about Israel and Gaza and what Israel is doing, you see that these comments express some kind of preferences that America would like Israel to adhere to. It, it's like advice, unsolicited advice to the Israelis delivered in public, which means it's designed to create some kind of public pressure. The, these three issues, the civilian casualties, humanitarian aid, and the post-war situation, it's not really clear so far that America has actually managed to get Israel to really change its behavior. So to take one example of this, which is America's attempt to get Israel to be more mindful of civilian casualties and, and try to cause less destruction in Gaza, just before the resumption of hostilities after this ceasefire, Antony Blinken, who's the US Secretary of State, was in Jerusalem, he met with Netanyahu's war cabinet, he apparently delivered a pretty unmistakable clear message that the US really expected Israel to do much more going forward to minimize civilian casualties. And then also afterwards at a press conference, he said some pretty clear things. So here's just a quote from Blinken at that press conference. He said, quote, that I underscored the imperative of the United States that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza may not be repeated in the south. I made clear that before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians. And he said specifically that Israel needed to do more to protect hospitals, power stations, and other facilities like that. Now, what the US was basically asking Israel to do here was to allow civilians in southern Gaza which is the scene of the renewed fighting after this ceasefire, to go to the north of the Gaza Strip, where fighting is now more minimal than it was before. So in the first phase of this operation, Israel swept into northern Gaza, then now it's going into the south. And if you remember when it was in the north, it told all the civilians that, that to be safe, they had to head into south Gaza. Now Israel is coming to south Gaza into an area that is not just densely populated in normal times, but because of all these other civilians who were 
displaced from northern Gaza. This place is massively, massively densely populated right now. People are sleeping on the streets. They're crowded, you know, hundreds into apartment buildings. So there's a real, real risk of massive civilian casualties when Israel moves into this area. And the US wants Israel to allow people to move north. Israel's not doing that. Israel hasn't allowed a humanitarian corridor to open, for civilians to leave the south and to go to the north. So you can see right away that they're not really respecting these American desires. And it's also the case from what we've heard of the fighting in southern Gaza. It's the most intensive of the conflict so far, so it's very, very likely that large numbers of civilians are being killed in that fighting. US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also had a go at talking publicly about this in a way that would was designed to put pressure on Israel, so he actually gave a whole speech just as the ceasefire was breaking down. And here's what he said. He said, I learned a thing or two about urban warfare from my time fighting in Iraq and leading the campaign to defeat ISIS. The lesson is not that you can win in urban warfare by protecting civilians. The lesson is that you can only win in urban warfare by protecting civilians. He goes on to say, you see, in this kind of fight, the center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. What Austin is saying though is that the only way for Israel to come out of this conflict with more security than it had before, and in a better political situation than it was in before, is that if it doesn't completely alienate the civilian population of Gaza. He's saying that Israel could succeed in completely destroying Hamas, but if it does so at the cost of an inordinate amount of civilian death and suffering and alienation in Gaza, then that's just going to mean that in the future, Israel's security problems continue. Even if they destroy Hamas, if another organization rises up in Gaza to take its place, and it's able to do that because of this extreme hatred of Israel that exists within Gaza, then that's not really a victory for Israel in this conflict. So that's what he means by a tactical victory and a strategic defeat. Tactically, maybe Israel will manage to destroy Hamas, take over its tunnels and its headquarters, but it might leave itself with an even worse situation going forward. So Austin's really trying to speak to Israel's self-interest there. He's trying to say to Israel, you know, hey, you might not actually care about protecting these people and about minimizing the loss of life in Gaza, but you are creating for yourself in the future an even worse situation if you do don't try to respect civilian life and the laws of war as much as possible. Now, it's also not really clear that this message has got through to the Israelis. In fact, what I would say, fair to say that it hasn't really got through to the Israelis. Some Republican congressmen, including Lindsey Graham, actually called on Lloyd Austin to resign after he made these remarks. I think that's deeply stupid. Austin's just trying to speak to Israel with the authority that he has from fighting this type of warfare. And these are actually really smart lessons. These are the lessons that America should have taken from the war in Vietnam, that it should take from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that you can't fight an insurgency or a terrorist organization in a way that just creates the conditions of new organizations to rise up in the future. So you see here a couple of ways that the US is trying to speak to Israel, trying to appeal to its humanitarian instincts, trying to appeal to its self-interest, but you don't really see publicly yet much evidence that this is working. What you see is that the Israeli government is very, very single-mindedly focused on destroying Hamas, 
bringing the hostages home and re-establishing its deterrence. And there's not really a lot of appetite to listen to outside advice or outside commentary. This creates a bit of a problem for the Biden administration because they really risk looking very weak and ineffectual. They, you know, they risk the impression that they will basically give Israel everything that it needs to carry out this military operation, and then they will attempt to use their influence to change some of the parameters of that operation to try to influence the Israelis to behave a bit differently. But if Israel doesn't listen, then they basically just continue giving the assistance, they continue being Israel's security guarantor. And it's actually a funny aspect of this kind of relationship between a very powerful country and a weaker country that you would expect that because the United States is Israel's main patron, because Israel really is dependent on the US to meet its security needs, that this would give Washington a lot of influence over what Israel does. But actually, it doesn't always work that way. And, and in this case, it really doesn't work that way because Israel's success and Israel's defense has come to be defined and understood as a key American national security interest by a large majority of the American public and by a large majority of the American political elite. And that means that the Biden administration can't really credibly threaten that it's, for instance, going to stop giving Israel military aid or that it's going to stop providing protection against these other groups in the region like the Houthis in Yemen or Hezbollah in Lebanon. No American president is going to take that action because it would lead to an enormous political blow-up at home. Biden would come under a huge amount of criticism if he tried to do anything that seemed like it might undermine Israel's defense. And that leaves him with very few credible options to actually pressure Israel to behave differently. Biden can't say, unless you do more to protect civilian casualties, we're going to withhold military aid from you, because there's really just no political universe in which he follows through on that threat. So if you make the threat, then the Israelis don't follow it, you look weak and your credibility and leverage is even lower than it was before. So for as long as Israel is defined in this way in American national security discourse, for as long as it's understood as being so important that Israel be defended, actually in a strange way, America loses leverage over Israel. It loses the ability to influence it because the Israeli government knows that almost however it behaves, it's going to continue to have the support of a huge portion of the American public and the American political elite. And that really restrains Biden and stops him from, from acting in ways that might actually force Israel to change its behavior. Now, when this situation might change and when there might be a bit more scope for influence is the post-war situation. And after the break, I'm going to come back and talk about that. <laughs> You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So once this conflict is over, and one day it will end, I don't know if that's going to be weeks from now or months from now, but sooner or later, Israel will declare the end of this conflict. They will claim that Hamas has been functionally destroyed in Gaza, that it has no organized political or military formations left. And then the question will arise, 
Who's going to rule Gaza now Hamas is gone? For many years now, Hamas has not just been a terrorist organization. It's not just been, you know, this kind of quasi-military organization. It's also been providing civilian government, the organs of government within Gaza. Someone needs to do that once Hamas is gone. And who does it is really important because Israel is going to want to know that in the future, it's not going to face security threats like Hamas emanating from Gaza. And it's really, really in the interests of the population of Gaza, the civilians within Gaza, that they have efficient, non-corrupt government, and they have government that's not going to provoke these constant altercations with Israel, these incursions from Israel that lead to such massive loss of civilian life and destruction within the Gaza Strip. Now, America for a long time has been interested in the future of the Palestinians and try to put diplomatic pressure on both sides to this conflict, both the Israelis and the Palestinians, to try to bring about some solution that will allow the Palestinians to have their own state, to have political autonomy, and will enable the security of both sides to be guaranteed so that this violence can somehow be brought to an end. It's actually been a really, really long time since there were any serious negotiations or any serious diplomatic process that was designed to bring about this outcome. And the high point of this activity was the 1990s, kind of began with the Oslo Accords in 1993, when the then leader of Israel and the leader of the Palestinians came together and signed this agreement, which provided the Palestinians with some limited autonomy in the West Bank, it created the Palestinian Authority, which is a government that has some authority and some um, uh, sovereignty of its own within the West Bank and at one point within Gaza. And Oslo also created this negotiation process that was supposed to lead to the announcement of a two-state solution and the end of the conflict. That famously fell down at Camp David in the year 2000. There was a big summit in the US. Bill Clinton really tried to knock heads together and to get both sides to to reach an agreement, they famously re failed to reach an agreement, no solution came out of that summit, and then everybody went home and shortly afterwards the Second Intifada began. The Second Intifada was a massive military uprising and terrorist campaign by the Palestinians, which resulted in many, many Israeli reprisals and basically destroyed the Israeli left. So the people within Israel who had been pushing for a two-state solution, had been pushing for some kind of agreement with the Palestinians, they just got wiped out as an electoral force because the Second Intifada was seen as proof that you know, Israel can't reach an agreement with the Palestinians. Basically, the Palestinians will always be dedicated to the destruction of Israel, so there's no way we can reach an agreement with them, and we basically just need to turn to military containment, using the power of our security apparatus to suppress the Palestinians, destroy their military organizations and their terrorist organizations, and prevent them from attacking Israel in the future. It was this kind of thinking that gave rise to Benjamin Netanyahu and, and gave him this kind of lock over Israeli politics that he's had for so long now, and which really doomed any hope of a two-state solution because Netanyahu Netanyahu has been vehemently opposed to giving the Palestinians their own state. Now, there's an interesting story about how American thinking on this question has evolved since the year 2000. The Bush administration actually tried to bring about a two-state solution. It tried to restart the peace process. 
The Bush administration held a summit in Annapolis in the last years of Bush's presidency, where the two sides came together, they held a conference, but they really, they, they didn't get close to reaching an agreement. And many people at the time said that this is basically the collapse of any hope of a two, the two-state solution happening in the future. When Barack Obama came into office in 2009, that was actually the same year that Netanyahu came back for this second act of his political life. Netanyahu had been the leader of Israel once in the 1990s, but 2009 is when his kind of modern walk over Israeli politics began, and him and Obama were elected just two months apart from each other. Obama, who, you know, I think as you remember, was this very thoughtful, well-meaning politician. He really thought deeply about global issues, he thought deeply about the long term, and he often took very principled stances on things that were not necessarily politically advantageous for him. And this is what he decided to do on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So at a time when pretty much everybody in American politics was saying that there's no hope of reaching any solution to this conflict, we should just steer well clear of it. Because to try to get movement on a two-state solution, you need to put diplomatic pressure on Israel. And doing that is very unpopular in American domestic politics because Israel has so many supporters. So many people said, including even liberal Democrats who were actually ideologically committed to a two-state solution, but who just saw it as a practical impossibility, they said to Obama, just leave this issue alone, you know, focus on something else. You're not going to make any headway here. But Obama decided that he was going to try. So in order to restart negotiations, he tried to put pressure on Netanyahu to temporarily freeze the construction of new Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So these are the settlements that um, Israeli Jews, often for religious reasons, erect in the West Bank on the land that is supposed to be the core of, of a future Palestinian state. Obviously, this is very, very unpopular with the Palestinians. It also makes a peace agreement much less likely because any peace agreement that's reached is going to have to involve uprooting probably 100 or 150,000 Israeli Jewish settlers from the West Bank, which obviously is a very difficult decision a very difficult thing for any Israeli government to do. Obama asked Netanyahu, as a gesture of good faith, to restart negotiations, to pause the construction of new settlements in the West Bank. So the ask from Obama wasn't even covering existing settlements, which new housing was being built in, just new settlements. Netanyahu refused to go along with this for a long time, he eventually conceded a partial freeze on settlement construction, but it didn't cover East Jerusalem, which is the most important area for the Palestinians. So Netanyahu was really not playing ball here. He was making it clear that he didn't really have any interest in going forward with even these minimal steps to create good faith and get negotiations started. Then, one day, Vice President Joe Biden was visiting Israel, and on that very day, the municipal authorities in Jerusalem announced the construction of hundreds of new housing units in East Jerusalem, which was this tremendously inflammatory act really, really strongly opposed by the Palestinians. And this was basically a signal by the Netanyahu government that they just had no interest in what Obama was trying to do. This came to be seen as a really embarrassing, humiliating incident for the Obama administration. Netanyahu had carried out this inflammatory act on the very day that Joe Biden was in Israel. And the 
political blowback that the Obama administration got throughout this whole process was enormous. Even liberal Democratic senators were saying to the Obama administration, just stop doing this. You are never going to get Netanyahu to change his mind. And all you're doing by trying is getting a huge amount of political criticism, a political blowback from Israel's supporters in the United States. So the message that Obama took from this and the lesson that everyone in his administration took from this is that at this point in time, there is just no partner for peace within Israel. So if we try to pressure Israel, we're not going to get anywhere, but we're going to suffer in American domestic politics because we will be accused of being weak on Israel threatening its security and so forth. Many of the people who now serve in the Biden administration served in the Obama administration during this crucial period. So they remember this. They really, really absorbed these lessons. And Brett McGurk, who became Biden's top Middle East official, said when he came into office that his understanding of what Biden wanted him to do was essentially nothing. The Biden administration just did not want to spend political capital or energy on the Middle East peace process, on trying to bring about a two-state solution. They just wanted him to keep everything quiet and to stop it from landing on Biden's desk, stop it on causing Biden political problems. Now, you can argue that that decision, although of course we can only blame Hamas for the horrific nature of Hamas's attacks on October 7th. But the Biden administration did definitely contribute to creating this situation in which even very moderate Palestinians, even Palestinians who want a two-state solution, who want a peaceful coexistence with Israel in the future, they were just being completely ignored. They could see no way forward in the future that was going to lead to the realization of their national aspirations. It's clear now that the Biden administration sees that this is an unsustainable situation and they're starting to talk about what the political situation should be after Hamas is gone. They've floated various ideas. There's been talk of some kind of international peacekeeping force in Gaza. This idea has not really gone anywhere because no one wants to send the troops to do it. America's certainly not going to send the troops. Europe's not going to send the troops. The Arab countries won't send the troops because they don't want to be seen as participating in some kind of renewed occupation of Gaza. So what is now currently been talked about and the idea that the Biden administration is trying to push is that the Palestinian Authority, which currently has some limited autonomy and sovereignty in the West Bank, will extend its own authority into Gaza and take over the governance of Gaza. This also is a tremendously problematic idea Firstly, because Israel really, really distrusts the Palestinian Authority. It believes the Palestinian Authority is at best weak and ineffectual, and at worst that it is actively you know, dedicated to the destruction of Israel, that it's basically a, an enemy organization. This has basically been the Netanyahu government's view. They don't trust it to run security in Gaza after the conflict. They don't trust it to stop Gaza from becoming a place where terrorist organizations can reconstitute themselves and then launch attacks on Israel again. So they're opposed to it. It is, I think, true that the Palestinian Authority would really, really struggle to establish any sort of authority in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority is not tremendously well-liked by many Palestinians. It was famously violently ejected from Gaza by Hamas about 15 years ago. It proved unable to defend itself. It proved unable to establish control and governance. And I'm not really sure that in the 15 years between that event that it's become any more legitimate or any more able of 
establishing security and proving to the Israelis that it can be trusted with that governance and with those security responsibilities. So I think when this conflict ends, you're going to see a real big collision between the US and Israel on this post-war situation. Israel is likely to take whatever measures it deems are necessary to get security back. And that is probably going to come at the expense of Palestinian security. It's quite possible that Israel will try to annex parts of the Gaza Strip, depopulate them, and then treat them as some kind of security buffer, like to establish space between Palestinian population centers and Israeli population centers, just to establish it as some kind of occupied zone where Israeli forces continue to be, so that in the future they will have more warning of any attack that comes from Gaza. It's quite likely that they might try, you know, if they don't annex the territory. And I think that you will see very little attention, at least from this Israeli government, to the, the desire of Palestinians to have security and have government that works well for them. And as long as you don't have those things, this brings us back to what Lloyd Austin said and that I talked about in the first half of this show, that it's really impossible to imagine that Israelis can have security in the long term if Palestinians can't also have security and have some future outside of grinding military occupation and humiliation. The Biden administration will try to put pressure on Israel to do something for the Palestinians, to do something for Palestinian civilians, those millions of people who are not part of Hamas, many of whom are children, and who ultimately just want the same thing that all human beings want, which is to live a life of freedom and dignity. But if anything, I expect Israel to be even less solicitous of this kind of advice, to be even less welcome to be influenced than they were before this conflict started, because Israel is really, really going to this bunker mentality, which is understandable given the horrific events of October 7th. But when you look at the world from a bunker, you have a limited horizon. You don't see clearly, you don't see that far. And Israel risks continuing to make many mistakes that are only going to prolong this conflict and to deepen the tragedy, rather than trying to grope however difficultly and however uncertainly for a way out of it and a way to a future where both sides can live in peace and security. Thanks for listening to this episode of America Explained. As always, I'm so grateful that you tuned in. I really hope you enjoy the show. And if you did, please tell a friend or check out our newsletter. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.